Chapter 1. Prologue. Part 1. The Collision Course, 1991-2003. Of The U.S. Army in the Iraq War, Volume 1. By U.S. Army Operation Iraqi Freedom Study Group. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Adam Cable. Chapter 1. Prologue. Part 1. The Collision Course, 1991-2003. Chapter 1. Prologue. The Collision Course, 1991-2003. Beyond the Truce Tent. Page 1. The American and Iraqi military commanders who met near the Iraq-Kuwait border to negotiate a ceasefire on March 3, 1991, were perhaps equally surprised to find themselves there under the circumstances that confronted them. By the time General H. Norman Schwarzkopf of U.S. Central Command, or CENTCOM, and Iraqi General Sultan Hashem met in the truce tent at Safwan, Iraq, a lightning-armored thrust had ejected the Iraqi armies from Kuwait, the country they had invaded in August 1990. The U.S.-led Operation Desert Storm, a 39-day air campaign followed by a 100-hour ground assault, had left an estimated 20,000 Iraqi soldiers dead and another 50,000 captured. The coalition, in stark contrast, had lost 245 troops killed, far fewer than the coalition commanders had expected, and had suspended combat operations without ever being asked for terms. The four-day ground campaign had been one of the most unequal in military history, and the outcome would force military professionals around the world to re-examine their assumptions about military effectiveness. However, it had not ended the regime of Iraqi dictator Saddam Hussein. Having achieved their original objective of restoring Kuwait's sovereignty and territorial integrity, then-President George H.W. Bush and his fellow coalition leaders had decided not to order their troops to march on to Baghdad. Instead, the massive force that devastated the Iraqi military disappeared from the theater almost as quickly as it had secured victory. Within weeks, a force of nine U.S. Army and Marine divisions melted away to a single brigade left behind in Kuwait. The U.S. and Iraqi forces that faced each other in the deserts of Kuwait and Iraq had little idea that they represented merely the opening phase of what became more than a quarter century of warfare. From January 1991 until the time of this book's writing, hostilities between or involving the United States and Iraq never ceased. The American and Iraqi armies that clashed and then disengaged in 1991 were far different from the forces that would clash again in the U.S.-led invasion of Iraq in 2003. Both the U.S. military and the Iraqi regime of Saddam went through dramatic, even transformational changes during the 12-year interval. The experiences of the 1990s, a decade in which the U.S. military was constantly engaged in contingency operations and the Iraqi regime constantly engaged in internal conflicts, shaped the ways in which the American forces and Iraqis operated and behaved in the short war of March to April 2003 and the protracted conflict that emerged afterward. Throughout the 1990s, hostilities between the United States and the Iraqi regime gradually intensified leading to short bouts of violence in 1993, 1994, 1996, and 1998 that presaged the reigniting of open warfare between the two sides. The U.S. Army After Operation Desert Storm Page 3 
The 1990s were a busy time for the U.S. military, despite the collapse of the Soviet Union and the rapid democratization of Eastern Europe. Aside from continuing its commitment to armed deterrence in Kuwait, Sinai, and the Korean Peninsula, the United States participated in numerous contingency operations in places such as Somalia, Haiti, Bosnia, and Kosovo. Despite these expanding military commitments, the nation sought to achieve a post-Cold War peace dividend by reducing its Cold War military structure. As its forces shrank, the U.S. military sought to offset the reduction in numbers by harnessing emerging technologies. The military force that emerged at the end of the decade was far different from the one welcomed home to ticker tape parades in 1991. Shortly after its redeployment from the Persian Gulf, the U.S. Army that achieved a lopsided victory against Iraq underwent dramatic changes in size. Of the 18 active divisions the Army fielded in 1989, only 10 remained by 1995. In keeping with popular expectations of a peace dividend, the Army's active duty strength shrank from 770,000 in 1989 to 510,000 in 1995, a precipitous drop that continued gradually to 490,000 by 2002. An even steeper reduction took place in the Army's civilian workforce, cut by 58% between 1989 and 1993. With the reduction in personnel came a shift in roles unnoticed by many outside the military profession. Active duty troops performed many of the support functions for the Cold War Army, but after Operation Desert Storm, the troops on active duty were to be expeditionary, focused on training to sustain their capabilities throughout the turbulence of the drawdown. As a result, contractors partially filled the void, becoming commonplace in the Army's maintenance bays and training centers, and even accompanying the Army as it deployed abroad in the 1990s. These cuts in personnel and combat power occurred during a period of fluctuation in the country's national security strategy after 40 years of containment. As the United States searched for a strategy for the post-Cold War world, the military sought to understand the ways in which Operation Desert Storm might signify the character of future wars. One of the most prominent lessons uniformed leaders took from Operation Desert Storm was that the military needed to find ways to project power more rapidly. Future foes were unlikely to afford the United States the luxury of the deliberate six-month buildup that had followed Saddam's invasion of Kuwait in August 1990. Accordingly, Chief of Staff of the Army General Gordon R. Sullivan enhanced the Army's expeditionary capabilities in the Gulf region by pre-positioning in Kuwait and Qatar equipment from the Army's deactivated units. When combined with regular troop deployments to Kuwait, the Army could place a division on a combat footing in that region within days, with the promise of more divisions arriving in shorter order than in 1990. At the same time, the Army continued a rotation of forces to Kuwait that included components of a maneuver brigade and air defense artillery units. Meanwhile, the Army's first post-Operation Desert Storm doctrine, presided over by the commander of the U.S. Army Training and Doctrine Command, or TRADOC, General Frederick M. Franks, Jr., who had led Seventh Corps during the war, offered more continuity than change with the Airland Battle Doctrine under which the Army had operated during Operation Desert Storm. In addition to high-intensity combat, the 1993 edition of Field Manual, or FM 100-5, Operations, placed increased emphasis not just on force projection, but also on operations other than war, or OOTW, an expansive category that included such diverse missions as peacekeeping, 
humanitarian assistance, counterterrorism, and counterinsurgency. For the Army, OOTW remained a series of potential operations that were considered less demanding than high-intensity combat, and consequently, the belief prevailed that units could be trained up for these lesser cases prior to any deployment, while not sacrificing readiness for high-intensity fire and maneuver. The Revolution in Military Affairs as the decade progressed, the Army came under increasing pressure to conform to the growing belief among military theorists that technology would transform future battlefields in accordance with a, quote, revolution in military affairs, end quote, or RMA. Advocates of RMA believed that a new way of war in the information age had begun to emerge in the Operation Desert Storm Air Campaign one in which advanced technology would give those who possessed it, such as the U.S. military, a decisive advantage over any potential foe. RMA advocates predicted that improvements in precision-guided munitions and sensor technologies would create a networked battlefield in which the fog of war could be eliminated. On this future battlefield, U.S. forces supposedly would enjoy almost complete awareness of both the friendly and enemy situation, enabling small, high-tech U.S. forces to conduct rapid, decisive maneuvers leading to the quick collapse of the enemy. The impact of RMA on the Army was mixed. While these network-centric or effects-based concepts did not find universal support within the Army, there were a substantial number of adherents, particularly in the fires, attack aviation, and intelligence communities. At the same time, Buzzwords and phrases associated with RMA and adopted by the Joint Fires and Intelligence Communities, such as information dominance, made their way into the Army's lexicon. Despite these influences, successive Army chiefs in the 1990s remained skeptical about the promise of technology alone to change the inherent nature of war, and a number of Army officers concluded that Operation Desert Storm might be a poor example of what the future was likely to bring. They predicted that future campaigns probably would take place under more trying conditions, and that America's technological advantages would likely be fleeting and unlikely to lift the fog of war. Some Army thinkers also noted that RMA discounted the possibility that adversaries might challenge the U.S. military through unconventional means, rather than the conventional ones that failed the Iraqis in 1991. Ultimately, no clear consensus coalesced around either RMA or its critics, to guide Army force development. Rather than make wholesale changes to the Army's structure or systems, Army leaders of the 1990s opted instead for an evolutionary modernization of the existing force. They employed a number of simulation exercises and field trials to find the best way to modernize the Army's systems and force structure. Venues, such as the modern Louisiana maneuvers of 1992 to 1994, led by Brigadier General Tommy Franks, were used to test ideas and concepts for modernization as part of an overarching Army concept called Force 21, within which the 4th Infantry Division became the experimental force and digital testbed. The 4th Infantry Division tested evolutionary appliques to existing systems, such as the M1 tank, and experimented with them in training in order to give the Army a way to make decisions about what systems to procure on a larger scale. Nonetheless, the resultant enhanced legacy forces did not satisfy the Army's critics, who advocated a focus on leap-ahead technology and brought increasing pressure on the Army of the 1990s to be, as Chief of Staff of the Army General Eric K. Shinseki put it, more, quote, 
responsive, deployable, agile, versatile, lethal, survivable, and sustainable. End quote. Operations Other Than War Somalia, Haiti, and the Balkans While the army sharply downsized following the Gulf War, the subsequent decade brought increased demand for its forces in mid-scale contingency operations and in low-intensity conflict, including a continuous deterrent posture to contain Saddam's still-aggressive regime in Iraq. This trend of OOTW began with Operation Provide Comfort, the effort to render humanitarian assistance to the large Kurdish refugee population that sought shelter from Saddam's forces under a U.S. no-fly zone in northern Iraq in the immediate aftermath of Operation Desert Storm. After Operation Provide Comfort, the next OOTW occurred in Somalia. In April 1992, the United Nations, or UN, established the UN Operation in Somalia, or UNISOM, a security force and contingent of observers meant to prevent Somali warlords from disrupting relief supplies to the starving population. U.S. officials quickly discovered that peacekeepers and aid alone could not alleviate the suffering, and despite the intentions of the international community, the warlords on the ground ignored the U.N.-brokered ceasefire, rendering the humanitarian relief operation ineffective. In response, the United States committed forces to Somalia in December 1992 as part of a 24-country coalition named the United Task Force that aimed to secure the relief activities under Chapter 7 of the UN Charter. Under the oversight of CENTCOM, the various national contingents grew to about 12,000 personnel, which augmented the 25,000 American service members deployed to Somalia. This more robust U.S. military presence, dubbed Operation Restore Hope, succeeded in ending large-scale starvation, but it was quickly reduced and replaced by a UN-led force. When the peace enforcement mandate broadened to include disarming the warring parties, Somali warlord Mohammed Farah Idid and his militia forces retaliated, killing 24 Pakistani soldiers in June and four American soldiers with a roadside bomb, or improvised explosive device, or IED, in August. In response, the United States committed a Joint Special Operations Task Force, or JSOTF, to fight IDED and his forces, though Secretary of Defense, or SECDEF, Les Aspen, denied U.S. field commanders' requests for armored vehicles in support of these expanded operations. U.S. involvement in Somalia culminated with the Battle of Mogadishu, October 3rd to the 4th, 1993, which pitted a task force of army rangers against thousands of Somali militiamen. In the bloodiest urban combat American forces had experienced since the Battle of Hue, Vietnam in 1968, the United States lost 18 soldiers killed and another 77 wounded, while between 1,500 and 3,000 Somalis were killed or wounded. Following the battle, the United States ceased further offensive operations, and then-President William J. Clinton ordered a complete withdrawal by March 1994. For their part, army leaders assessed the iconic clash in Mogadishu as a failure. What had begun as a response to a humanitarian crisis had expanded to peacekeeping, peace enforcement, and ultimately pitched urban combat, a mission creep that significantly shaped army leaders' future views about humanitarian intervention and nation-building. Six months after ending the mission in Somalia, the United States embarked on another major OOTW in Haiti to reinstate elected President Jean-Bertrand Aristide, removed in a military coup three years before. 
On September 18, 1994, Clinton initiated a Marine and Airborne assault on Haiti. With troops of the 82nd Airborne Division en route, former President Jimmy Carter negotiated the peaceful exit of Haiti's military rulers and the return of Aristide. Within hours, Operation Uphold Democracy changed from an invasion into a permissive stabilization mission that would last until 2000. Throughout its six-year presence in the poverty-stricken country, the U.S. military's operating posture was in many ways a response to the disaster in Mogadishu, so that the army in Haiti was on force protection to such a degree that, in one observer's words, it, quote, not only drove the mission, it almost became the mission, end quote. By 1993, the Army experienced a 100% increase in the number of soldiers deployed on contingency operations since the end of the Cold War. As more Army units deployed in stability and support operations, the Army sought to change the way it prepared these units for their real-world missions by incorporating low-intensity conflict or peacekeeping scenarios into war games and combat training centers. The Combat Maneuver Training Center in Germany developed a Danubian scenario to stress an increased spectrum of war including ethnic factions, media, and civilians on the battlefield. In 1993, the Joint Readiness Training Center conducted its first peacekeeping rotation with the complexities of interagency actors and international non-governmental organizations. The National Training Center, or NTC, in California continued to focus on high-intensity operations, but prescient NTC leaders like Colonel William Scott Wallace recognized that it was time to modernize the opposing force, concluding that if his son had a cell phone in his car, the enemy was probably using cell phones as well. Training center rotations exercised contingency deployments by using all manner of movement, drawing prepositioned equipment, and intermediate staging including airfield seizure for forced entry in some instances. The focus of these efforts was at the tactical level, however, and in its higher-level operational exercises, the Army struggled to develop simulations adequately depicting or even incorporating the lower-intensity end of the conflict spectrum. At the same time, the combat training centers served as barometers of Army readiness as the decade progressed. Fiscal austerity and high operations tempo made for training rotations in which units performed less effectively than they had previously. By the mid-1990s, the Army's training systems became increasingly geared toward the ongoing crisis in the Balkans, where the wars following the fragmentation of Yugoslavia in 1991 had a profound impact on the Army's assumptions and perspectives in ways that would affect the later campaign in Iraq. When the Yugoslav republics of Slovenia, Croatia, Macedonia, and Bosnia-Herzegovina declared independence in 1991 and 1992, ethnic and nationalist civil wars erupted. U.S. Army battalions rotated to the former Yugoslav Republic of Macedonia as lightly armed U.N. observers in 1993 in an effort to contain the spread of conflict and forestall Serbian aggression. Once North Atlantic Treaty Organization, or NATO, airstrikes combined with the threat of Croatian army and Bosnian Muslim ground forces, established a stalemate among the warring parties in Bosnia in 1994-1995, the United States was able to broker a fragile peace through the Dayton Accords in late 1995. As part of a larger NATO peacekeeping force designed to enforce the Accords, the United States deployed the 1st Armored Division into northern Bosnia. Although U.S. leaders declared the mission would last for only one year, it would eventually continue for the better part of a decade. 
The long Balkan peacekeeping mission exposed disagreements within the ranks of senior American officers as they struggled to define the Army's role after the Cold War. Preferring the mission of conventional warfighting, many Army leaders resisted the idea of focusing on OOTW even when they were clearly the Army's primary role in the 1990s. There was also the U.S. peacekeeping forces' operating posture that emphasized force protection so heavily that the average soldier's contact with the local population was minimal. Units tended to satisfy themselves with presence patrols and inspections to monitor the general framework agreement for the peace, with little consideration of how their military tasks should contribute to the political goals of the operation, while elevating force protection to a mission-essential task. As U.S. Army commander of the NATO force in Bosnia, Shinseki assessed that, with their limited numbers, fewer than 20,000 U.S. troops, his forces could only provide general area security and could not be expected to perform other tasks, such as replacing the functions of the local police. Meanwhile, as had been the case in Haiti and Somalia, the Army adopted routinized patrolling established large semi-permanent bases serviced by contractors, and provided extensive amenities for the deployed forces. While the army remained committed in Bosnia, it expanded its Balkan presence southward in 1999 as the United States intervened to stop Serbian forces carrying out large-scale ethnic cleansing against Kosovo's Albanian-majority population. In March 1999, NATO began an air campaign focused on military, communications, and industrial targets throughout Serbia and Kosovo, aiming to force Serbian President Slobodan Milosevic to withdraw his troops from Kosovo altogether. NATO ground forces entered Kosovo without a fight, 38,000 sorties and 78 days later, taking up another stabilization mission. Despite NATO's declaration at the outset of the conflict that its troops would not engage in ground combat in Kosovo, NATO commanders had relied on ground forces deployed to Macedonia and Albania to deter the Milosevic regime from further aggression. While he had considered using ground forces, NATO Commander General Wesley K. Clark had also expected to be able to wield the deep-strike aviation capability that had become the centerpiece of the air-land battle doctrine the army had developed against the Soviets. To prepare for a deep strike against the Serbs, 5th Corps Commander Lieutenant General John W. Hendricks task-organized units from the Germany-based 12th Aviation Brigade with elements of 2nd Brigade 1st Armored Division to form Task Force Hawk under the command of Brigadier General Richard A. Cody and his deputy, Colonel Raymond T. Odierno. However, Difficulties in deploying Task Force Hawk and its 48 AH-64 Apache helicopters from Germany to operating bases in Albania meant that the attack helicopters never tested the extensive Yugoslav air defense network and did not contribute to the campaign against Serbian forces. Reviewing the aviation operations results with Hendricks, U.S. Army Europe Commander General Montgomery C. Meigs, who was also commander of the NATO Stabilization Force in Bosnia-Herzegovina, came to believe that the Army's independent deep-strike aviation capability did not really exist. As Task Force Hawk transitioned into a ground-based Task Force Falcon and occupied one of NATO's five multinational brigade sectors in Kosovo, NATO troops encountered unanticipated levels of civil violence between Albanians and Serbs, so that their primary mission quickly became one of restoring order and maintaining peace. In Bosnia-Herzegovina, the army had only experienced the aftermath of sectarian violence. In Kosovo, it became the army's job to stop it. 
Ironically, having bombed Serbia into submission, U.S. troops found themselves protecting ethnic Serbs living in Kosovo from Albanian reprisals as the once-dominant ethnic minority felt the wrath of the long-suppressed majority. Further complicating the deployment was a reluctance to tie the army's operation to any political end state for Kosovo, whether as an autonomous province of Serbia, UN protectorate, or independent country. The delays in the deployment of Task Force Hawk prompted the army to reevaluate its strategic agility. The Kosovo War highlighted other shortcomings as well, such as the limitations of operating heavy vehicles in areas with underdeveloped infrastructure, the lack of organic mobility and adequate protection in light units, and the manpower-intensive nature of operations in urban areas and complex terrain. From the American perspective, the air campaign had compelled the withdrawal of Serbian forces, but the subsequent messy reality of peace enforcement had required ground troops. This renewed the debate within the U.S. military not only about joint operating roles, but also about the character of modern war in the post-Cold War era, while giving greater impetus to the advocates of RMA who saw Kosovo as a validation of their ideas. The Kosovo campaign, however, had raised serious questions about RMA's validity. It emerged in the operation's aftermath that U.S. military leaders had dramatically overestimated the effect of the air campaign. On June 10, 1999, SECDEF William S. Cohen announced that air power and missiles had degraded and diminished the Serbian military, destroying more than 50% of its artillery and one-third of its armored vehicles. Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff General Henry Hugh Shelton elaborated on Cohen's figures, citing the destruction of around 120 tanks, 220 armored personnel carriers, and up to 450 artillery pieces and mortars, losses that U.S. leaders assessed had been the basis for the Serbian decision to withdraw. However, when NATO troops and Western reporters arrived in Kosovo, they found little physical evidence of such battle damage, noting instead the Serbian use of decoys and the difficulty with assessments conducted at high altitude. A Newsweek article published the following year cast doubt on the Pentagon and NATO figures. Rather than the 744 supposedly confirmed kills during the conflict, the article cited a suppressed U.S. Air Force report based on a search of Kosovo that found evidence of only 14 tanks, 18 armored personnel carriers, and 20 artillery pieces destroyed. U.S. and NATO leaders had probably vastly underestimated the importance in the campaign of the 18,000-strong Kosovo Liberation Army, the Kosovar Albanian insurgent force that had styled itself as, quote, NATO's ground force, end quote. Overall, the Kosovo episode was a warning that faith in precision airstrikes and information dominance to change an enemy's state or population's behavior might be misplaced. End of Chapter 1 Prologue, Part 1, The Collision Course, 1991-2003, read by Adam Cable, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, 2021.